0: The k Up podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to k Up. This week, a special guest, former Attorney General Eric Holder, we talk Russia, Mueller, Trump, Obama, Sessions, redistricting, whether he's going to run for president, and what happened when he went to see Black Panther. This conversation was originally recorded for our k Up live show on February 27th and has been edited for content and clarity. Hey. Good morning, sir. Hey. Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post and host of the the podcast, Cape Up. Welcome to our first ever Cape Up Live event with the executive producer of the forthcoming CBS show, Maine Justice, author of the forthcoming book, (laughs) Pursuing Justice, chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and the 82nd attorney general of the United States Eric Holder.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Now, before we begin some disclosures, today's event is life coming full circle. You see, the idea for K-pop was born in October 2014 when I interviewed Eric at the Washington Ideas Forum. So 18 months, 73 guests, and one wedding later, mine, which you officiated. I am thrilled to welcome you to
1: the podcast. All right. It's good to be here. So, Eric, how have you been? I've been fine. You know, Um, (laughs) you know, I will ask me that question at the conclusion of this
0: interaction. (laughs) All right. Fine. So President Trump's been tweeting. I double checked before I came out here to see if there's anything more. But he's been tweeting about the Mueller probe since 6.59 a.m. Three tweets culminating in one at 7 49 a.m. that simply read witch hunt all caps exclamation point (laughs) given that how do you interpret the moves by Mueller of late we've got 100 charges 19 people indicted three companies what's going on i mean
1: i think there are three strains to the investigation um one Conspiracy, not collusion. There's no such thing as collusion, so a question of conspiracy. Uh, There's another one with regard to obstruction. And then I think one um, that is necessary to understand everything, what I would call the context um, line, that deals with... um, the Trump organization's interaction with Russians before he was president. And I think that's the one that potentially could lead to something catastrophic uh, by Trump with regard to Bob Mueller's um, continued presence in, in the office. And catastrophic, you mean firing? Yeah, potentially
0: could do something like that. Do you think he would be gutsy enough to do it himself, or would he fo- would he have his own Saturday night massacre and have someone at DOJ be the, be the bad guy?
1: I mean, it, it, if you want to do it in a linear fashion, you'd have to go through the Justice Department. But it's hard for me to imagine, um, you know, Rod, for instance, Rod Rosenstein, who I've known for you know 20, 25 years, um, agreeing to do that. Um, I, I guess I, I guess the Solicitor General would be next, since the Associate Attorney General has now pulled herself out. It's hard for me to see how you're going to get that through the Justice Department. But there are potentially, I think, other ways in which it might be accomplished. I don't necessarily want to share them. I was about to say in- such as. <laughs> well, well, I think the president could, you know, I think, could really just suspend or do away with the regulation that set up the, um, uh, the independent, the, mm-hmm. the special counsel's, special counsel's office. I think he's got, he potentially has that power as the head of the executive Uh branch.
0: From where you've, from where you've sat and where you sit now, has President Trump obstructed justice?
1: Um, I think that you can make a pretty good technical case. Um, If you look at the Lester Holt interview... Um, if you look at the request that he made of to the other intelligence to the in- intelligence heads to you know to talk to Comey about how he should deal with uh, with certain witnesses, uh, if you look at what happened on the airplane with the formulation of that statement, I think he probably got a, a technical case. I'm not at all certain that at this point you have a case that you would want to bring to court. And my guess is that Bob is in Bob, Bob Mueller is in the process of putting together as strong a case as he as he possibly can. I, this is, people have to understand this is an investigation that's in its relatively early stages they've been really kind of moving at at light speed from my perspective this is about an 18 month to 24 month investigation if you're just looking at something done it at a normal pace and we're now uh, this thing's less than a year old and there's been pretty substantial amount a pretty substantial amount done by uh by muller
0: yeah, i was about to ask you is Mueller just getting started or are we nearing the end of his work you think
1: well where is he uh, only, Given what you just said in only, my question. Well, only they know. I mean, I, you I'm, know, who knows what they have, um, what people who have been indicted have shared well, Who have Co-op, who are sharing with them. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I don't know. What signal did it send, do you think,
0: the, the indictments a week ago Friday of the 13 Russians?
1: I think that's very significant, because I think if you're looking at, uh, at a portrait, one half of that portrait was, was painted. Um, you can no longer say that this is a witch hunt or that this doesn't exist. I mean, you've got specific people. You've got three other entities. You've got really facts, dates, times. Um, So we know that it happened. Now the question is, who might have been involved with it? And I think that's the other part of the portrait that has to be painted. Is there anything that... On the the American side, I
0: mean, might Mm -hmm. have been involved. Is there anything that you're anticipating Mueller doing that would be a signal to you that he
1: is nearing the end of of the investigation? Well, in, in some ways, I think it's uh, Manafort's obvious. You know, if there's a deal struck there, um, then I think you're getting close to some kind of you know, culminating event, um, but there could be other ways in which you know you get to um, you get to the end. But Manafort, at least at this point, seems you know relatively obvious.
0: You know, one thing that was surprising to me in the the um, in the reindictment of Rick, of Gates mm-hmm. was that he lied to the investigators earlier this month. Well, can you,
1: <laughs> I've,
0: How, can you explain that to me? No. And <laughs> Why would it?
1: So. That is, you know, I've been a lawyer since 1976. Don't do the calculations, <laughs> folks. Um, and I have, uh, I've never heard anything like that before. You come in for, you know, a proffer, queen for a day, as it's called, um, and don't share the truth, um, which is totally inconsistent with, every proceeding that I've done in that regard, um, and every for, proceeding Queen, that I've heard about.
0: In, in Queen for a Day, you're allowed to go there right. and unburden yourself without you fear of,
1: of Queen for a Day, right? you want to go in there and say, look, I was responsible for the death of Jimmy Hoffa, you know, <laughs> the disappearance of Judge Crater. I mean, you want to put everything out there. Tupac and Biggie, I mean... Don't kid don't about Tupac and Biggie. <laughs> <laughs> You yeah, know, there's kind of some things that are holy. Let's not, let's, let's not go there. Yeah, I interrupted You're you. are making me emotional, man, huh? What? <laughs> I interrupted you no, in the I mean, Queen for a Day. Yeah, I mean, Queen for you, a Day, the purpose of which is to allow you to share information with the prosecutor. Um... And everything that you say cannot be used against you. And so you wanna pile into that um, as much truthful information as you possibly can to make it difficult, quite frankly, for the prosecutor to use, um, to, to get at you. Because they then have to prove that anything that they got uh, did not come from that which you shared. Mm-hmm. And to go and not tell the truth um, Again, it's inconsistent with anything I've ever seen in my time as
0: a lawyer. So over the weekend, I sent out a tweet uh, to my followers asking, saying that we were going to be sitting down, and right. if they had any questions, to tweet back at me some questions. And I got one from at mom to Ian, and um, this person tweeted, would, would he kindly explain if slash how a sitting president can be indicted?
1: What would that look like? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There are um, there are opinions in the Justice Department that indicate you cannot indict a sitting president; that the president has to first be uh, removed from office through the impeachment process. Um, I, you know, I've looked at those opinions, um, and I think that um, I'm not at all certain. The court has the Supreme Court has never ruled on that question, um, and I'm not at all certain that, as I look back at those opinions. Um, that I have as much confidence in them as I I once did, because I think it presumes a couple of things. It presumes that there is going to be a Congress that will, in the face of misconduct by the president, take action to remove him from office to allow the indictment to occur. And it also talks about the the paralysis that would occur in the executive branch by having the president indicted. And I don't think it necessarily takes into account the 25th Amendment, which if you had an indicted president and the cabinet decided that he was, unable to perform his duties, he could be temporarily removed. Um, And so I think on the basis of those two factors, uh, I'm not at all certain that a sitting president um, could not be indicted. Um, What impact would a pardon
0: of Manafort by Trump have on the Mueller investigation?
1: Well, it would certainly relieve Manafort of any concern that he could be indicted on any substantive offenses, but it would not relieve him of the obligation to testify truthfully um in any kind of interaction that he would have with Mueller, be it, it an interview um or you know a testimony before a grand jury if he were pardoned uh he would lose his fifth amendment i mean would, his fifth amendment privilege would be fully vindicated um and so um, muller would have the opportunity then to um, put him in front of a grand jury interview him and uh, ask him all the questions that he wanted to ask him. And if Manafort lied, he would could still then be uh, indicted. And we have seen that Bob Mueller is not shy about indicting people for not telling the truth. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. On December 17th of, of last year, you tweeted, absolute red line, all caps, the firing of Bob Mueller or crippling the special counsel's office. If removed or meaningfully tampered with, there must be mass popular peaceful support of both. The American people must be seen and heard. They will ultimately be... Be determinative. This was when the rumors were rampant in Washington that any minute, any minute now, back then, President Trump was going to fire, fire Bob Mueller. If that were to happen now, do you think that people should? Do you stand by this tweet? People should flood the streets to to
1: protest. Um, yeah. Would be, would that be an, an abuse of power? That'd be a total abuse of power, and I would think it would be an impeachable offense. Um, to remove the person who is investigating you um, for any reason other than cause, um, I I think is uh, simply unacceptable. And the American people, I think, cannot um, allow that to occur our voices need to be heard if that, um, if that occurs. And as I said, peaceful protests, um, but I, I was thinking along the lines of the, of the Women's March the day after the, mm-hmm. the inauguration. We need to have something like that, maybe, maybe about 10 times the, the size of that, so that people in Congress understand that um, this is something that the American people have deemed um, unacceptable and require them to, uh, to act. Well, you know, there is a march that's coming next month, March 24th. March 24th.
0: Yep. Um, the the kids of parkland florida who have been really incredible about <clears throat> excuse me changing the debate uh, the the debate on guns in this country have you been surprised by just their activism and their response to the mass shooting in their school
1: i gotta tell you that it is a it's a tragedy and i i feel for those parents uh for the loss of life there um but, you know, I've also been heartened by the response of those young people. Um, my daughter tweeted, um, Maya. Maya, who you, you always retweet her. She's always, she's, she's brilliant. Yeah, she's got, she's got better tweets than me. Um, <laughs> and she made a point that I thought was pretty interesting. She said that after Sandy Hook, you had, you know, first graders and they didn't have, and those who survived didn't have voices. They were really little kids, you know. But when you have a massacre that happens in a a high school, you're talking about 16, 17-year-olds, these are kids with voices, um, the survivors. And they are the ones who are leading this effort in a way that the, the Sandy Hook kids could not. And so they will stay in the consciousness of this nation. My hope is, you know, this is February, and that they are, they're out there. My hope is that they'll be there in May, and in June, and in July, and in August, and in September. Um, I hope that they'll stay focused, and I hope that their advocacy will move this nation, uh, well actually not move this nation, because the nation's in, in the appropriate place, move the leadership of this nation to a place where the american people already are how confident are you that they'll be successful in moving the leadership to be where the american people are um i can't say that i'm very very confident i mean you know if the reaction is to what happened in florida we're gonna uh ban bump stocks you know we're gonna do that after what happened in nevada Uh, and we're gonna raise the age that you can buy uh, an ar-15 from 18 to 21 That, from my perspective, is not consistent with what should be a responsible reaction, which should be to ban AR-15s, to ban high-capacity magazines, to expand um, our background check system uh, in a way that the American people overwhelmingly support. I mean, you know, like 80, 90% of the American people say we should have universal background checks. About two-thirds say we should ban AR-15s. Um, but we have a gun lobby and gerrymandered districts that allow um, our representatives in Congress to do things that are inconsistent with the people they represent. Would you have run into gunfire without a weapon if you were president? <laughs> Would I have
0: what? <laughs> Would you have run into gunfire without a weapon oh, oh, if oh. you were
1: president? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Queens. He's from Queens. Um... <laughs> And that's about where the similarities end. I mean, that you know, that that statement, um, you know, reflects in some ways all that's wrong with this president. Um, to say something like that, um, you know, is inconsistent with his, his history. Uh, I, I, a lot, I looked at what Joy Reid said. It was interesting. She tweeted something uh, and said that. Well, you know he says he would run into, you know, into this school where live ammunition was being, being shot um, without a gun, but he wouldn't go to Vietnam when it would have given him a gun. Um, and so I, that's just one of those weird Trump things that I just chalk up to, you know, he had a bad day. He got up too early. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, speaking of President Trump,
0: Let's talk about the independence of the of the Justice Department and during an interview with the New York Times in December the President you did, well, you always do the smallest research, so you know I mean I mean that it's my job well, yeah, yeah
1: so but then i've got to try to be consistent <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't worry about being consistent all right, all right so so during an interview in December um, with the New York Times, President Trump once again bemoaned the fact that Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself from from the um, the Mueller russia investi- investigation, and when he was asked if he thought you were more loyal to President Obama, Trump said, quote, I don't want to get into loyalty, but I will tell you, but I will tell you that I will say this. Holder protected President Obama, totally protected him. Uh, Last month, the president reportedly invoked your name again during an angry Oval Office meeting where he asked, quote, where's my Roy Cohn? Did you not protect President Obama, or does President Trump have a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the attorney general? Uh,
1: That would be the latter. Uh, He's got a (laughs) fundamental misunderstanding of both the role of the attorney general and the role that I played in the Obama administration. Listen, there's there's kind of a basic problem there. I didn't have to protect (laughs) Barack Obama, okay? (laughs) You know, he wasn't his campaign wasn't colluding with the Russians. We didn't have to worry about obstruction of justice, um, you know. And the other thing is that President Obama understood that the best justice departments are those that are independent of uh, of the White House. You know, he's a lot of things Barack Obama is, but he's also a good lawyer and he's also a student of history and understands that those justice departments that get too close to the White House are the justice departments that uh, that get into trouble. The Attorney Generals who get into uh, get into trouble. And so the notion that uh, you know I would be compared to somebody as odious as uh, as Roy Cohn. On the other hand, I did like the comparison to Bobby Kennedy. That was okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, as I said, there was no need for me to protect uh, Barack Obama in, in the way that I guess he wants his attorney general to protect him. I, I guess he thinks he needs to be protected from stuff.
0: Do you think that? Do you think the president is? operating as a president or more as a, the head of, I'm just going to say it, a crime family, like as in, <laughs> as, in the, as in the Godfather.
1: Well, I'm not going to go there. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, come on. How about, how about loose cannon? Um, you, know, I, you know, I don't, you know, it's, I think there is in some ways a, a lack of understanding about the ways in which government um, has traditionally and appropriately operated. The breaking through of norms, um, not just forget about laws and what Bob Mueller finds, but breaking through of norms that this president... Um, has done, I think, reflects that that fundamental lack of understanding, and there is a danger there that things that have been built up over over centuries. Um, are being flouted by this president, and I I get concerned that um, what's the impact of this gonna be when Trump is ultimately gone? Does that mean that those norms um, have been destroyed, or do we somehow find our way back to them? Because a lot of the appropriate functioning of government is determined not by laws, statutes, and regulations, but just by norms and expectations that, um, that people have. Let's talk about Congress, because you mentioned Congress a, a moment ago.
0: Um, have you given up on Congress fulfilling its constitutional duty to be a check on the executive? Um,
1: I think as long as you have the, the present Congress that we have, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that I, I keep thinking that we'll get to a point where he'll go too far and they will Act, they'll get activated and understand that they do have a, you know, they are a co-equal branch of government. But I can't say that I'm particularly optimistic when you see the things that Devin Nunes has done, mm-hmm. uh, when you see the lack of, uh, of activity by the oversight committees. I mean, you know, they called me up to talk about, you know, Fast and Furious like 10 times, you know? And that was something that I had little or nothing to do, stopped it and all that, um, held me in, in contempt. And I think about all the things that have been going on in this administration, not only with regard to the, the president, but with regard to, you know, cabinet secretaries. And uh, this Congress has really just said, you know, well, you know, it is it is what it is. Um, how shocked were you by
0: by the Nunes memo and then and the Shiff memo? and just the
1: fact that we have a Nunes and Schiff memos to be discussing. I mean, that is, that's pretty scary. I mean, you know, there are things that happen in an intelligence capacity that are not to be shared. You don't want to potentially reveal sources and, and methods. And if you are a person who could help the United States Um, or a foreign intelligence agency that could help the United States. You now have to dial into that equation, um, that calculus. Well, if I share information with the United States, am I gonna end up in a memo that some head of an intelligence committee is going to, to share? Um, so I, I think you know there's a long-term potential negative impact to what Devin Nunez did. I think what Adam Schiff did was necessary to kind of correct the record, the incorrect record that, uh, that Nunez tried to uh, tried to paint.
0: Uh, last week, yeah, a week ago today, you tweeted. Russian threat to our upcoming elections. Do something, do anything, impose sanctions overwhelmingly approved by even this dysfunctional Congress. Are you simply unfit without the necessary nerve or do they have something on you? We were attacked. Um, I forgot to put in my notes who this was directed at, whether it was to the president or Congress. But either way, um, you are you are hurling thunder at inaction at either end of Pennsylvania Avenue.
1: Yeah, I mean, this country was attacked. I mean, you know, it was electronically attacked, it was hacked, um, the most basic part of who we are as Americans, our electoral system was attacked. And what have we done to prepare ourselves for what will be an inevitable attack in this year, 2018, 2020, there will be off your elections in 2019, what have we done? They have done absolutely nothing. And um, this is something that you would think a joint committee would be looking at. Um, there'd be executive action, there'd be new regulations, there would be money spent. Um, we try to anticipate what the Russians did. There are sanctions that this Congress passed, this dysfunctional Congress passed overwhelmingly, that this president has made the determination he's not gonna impose. I mean, this is absurd. This is absurd. This is a <laughs> dereliction of duty. And, For, I mean, this is is Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor and saying, you know, well, okay, um, take it easy, we got this, and and not doing anything. It's George W. Bush after 9-11 doing nothing. Um, We were attacked, we were attacked, and it is responsible, it is incumbent upon um, both Congress and the people in the executive branch to do something, they have done nothing. So it's incumbent upon Congress to do something,
0: and they haven't done anything, and one of the ways to get Congress to do something is to change Congress. Uh, with the midterm elections coming up in 18, and. I want to talk about your work as chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. It has four four pillars, legal action, mobilizing grassroots, supporting reforms, and winning targeted elections. Yesterday, I believe, it was um, you filed, the, the group filed a lawsuit in Wisconsin. I think this falls under, under legal action. Talk about what you're doing
1: in Wisconsin. Well, with regard to the lawsuit that was filed by our... Um by the, the foundation that is a part of the uh, NDRC. Um, Governor Walker, there are two people, two um, a state assemblymen and a state senator who left their positions to join his administration under the uh, uh, applicable regulations in uh, Wisconsin. You're supposed to fill those seats as soon as is practical, as soon as is possible. And he has made or indicated he wasn't going to fill these things until 2019. Um, And so people in those districts would have been unrepresented over the course of the next year. And we made the determination that we would sue on their behalf to tell him to do his job, which is to hold a special election. And I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for a particular result. You know, I'm just saying, look, hold the election, do what you're supposed to do. And that's what the NDRC is really all about, to try to inject fairness into our electoral system, which has become tilted by gerrymandering, by you know, huge amounts of unregulated money that go into, into the system. Um, I, I think that if we have a fair system, where Democrats are competing fairly against Republicans, where progressive ideas are being compared to conservative ideas, that progressives and Democrats will do just fine. But the elections have to be fair.
0: -hmm. Uh, Pennsylvania, you filed uh, a motion to intervene to protect the court drawn
1: congressional map in Pennsylvania. Talk about what's happening there. Well, I mean, this is pretty amazing. All right, so Pennsylvania is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. They have a a congressional delegation that is now 13 Republicans, five um, Democrats, although it is about a 50 50 state. suit was bought to say that uh, that was unfair gerrymandering court found that in fact it was true gave the legislature an opportunity to redraw the lines they came up with a map that the court said was unacceptable and the court drew its own map Uh, and what was the reaction of the republicans in pennsylvania they decided they wanted to try to impeach the judges Um, and so they've now filed a lawsuit to overturn that which the uh, the court has done We have intervened there to try to defend uh, the court and also to defend the the process. Again, to simply have a fair map system in place in Pennsylvania, as we have tried to ensure in other parts of the country.
0: Now, some of the the analysts say that Democrats, as a result of these redrawn districts, that Democrats could pick up three to five new congressional seats in 2018. 2018. Um, That's what it says on paper. But if people don't go out and vote that's not going to happen is uh, one of the pillars is uh, of the NDRC is to win targeted elections right. so how do you determine which races
1: to target and why well we look at the electoral um, system through a redistricting lens, um, to try to make determinations about where we can ensure that when 2021 comes around and we have to redistrict as we have to do after every after every census, um, to make sure that what happened in 2011 doesn't happen in 2021, that lines are drawn in a in a fair way, and so we look at in each state. Who are the people who are most responsible for drawing those lines in 2021? Governors always matter, state senators um, always matter. But in certain states, you go further down ballot. In Ohio, the Secretary of State, the state auditor are important. Um, In Wisconsin, the Supreme Court will will matter. That's why I'm gonna go to Wisconsin in March to campaign for uh, an open um, Supreme Court seat there. So that's, we're we're making determinations about where you see the greatest amount of of partisan gerrymandering and then support uh, those candidates who are in those critical positions and who will be in place in 2021, which is why we supported Ralph Northam uh, in Virginia last year, who said that he would not sign um, a bill that uh, redistricted in Virginia in 2021 unless it came from an impartial commission.
0: Why? Democrats are, seem to be late
1: to, to this party of uh, focusing on. We were 10 years ago we ain't late this time we ain't late this time we're here we're going to be heard we're going to be effective and we're going to have an impact on what happens with regard to the census in 2020 which is critical Mm -hmm. and then what happens in redistricting in 2021 we were asleep at the wheel in 2020 in, in 2011 we didn't do that which we should have done not only for the party but for this country i mean this nation is I think an exceptional one, because of the way in which we allow the people of this nation to choose the path that the nation should be on. And gerrymandering takes that away from the people. It allows politicians to pick <laughs> their voters instead of letting citizens pick um, their representatives.
0: Okay, so be, being being um, asleep at the wheel in terms of in terms of Democrats, but right now the Democratic Party is in this fight with its with itself between. Uh, the progressive wing of the party and the so-called establishment wing of the party. um, Do you do you think that kind of that kind of fight, basically a rehash of Hillary versus Bernie, will be detrimental to the party or can can the party get over
1: that fight? Well, I think that kind of discussion is, is a healthy one. But what I think Democrats have to understand is that the differences between the, the, the progressive part of the party and the establishment part of the party, using your terms, um, are really not that significant when you compare the Democratic Party to the Republican Party and you see where, where they want to take the nation. So let's have that conversation. Let's figure out the specifics of particular policies but not lose sight of um, what the ultimate goal is, which is to make sure that uh, progressive democratic ideas that I think address 21st century problems, but are rooted in a great democratic past, that those are triumphant and that come 2020, well actually start in 2018 with the House and the Senate and 2020 with regard to the House, the Senate, and the presidency and the state at the state level as well, that um, we have more progressives, we have more Democrats um, in place um, so that we have policies in place that better reflect um, the will of the American people. I think the American people are really kind of lined up if you go kind of issue by issue more with the Democratic Party than they are with the, uh, with the Republican Party. Now, in 2020, I mean, you could do something
0: to be you know, <laughs> a part of the solution of the things you've been talking about. Earlier this month, Rachel Maddow asked you, quote, would you make a better president And you replied um, uh, last year. This interview was last year. Any one of my kids would be a better president than (laughs) Donald Trump. You went on to say, I will make a decision at the end of the year, this year, at the end of the year with regard to higher office. My question, though, is what does Dr.
1: Malone think of all this talk? (laughs) Well, she's sitting right here. Um, let's just say that she's not been convinced yet that uh, that would be an a good thing to do for us, for our, our, our family. And, um, okay,
0: understood. We'll take that and put it over to the side for, for a moment, just to entertain this for, for a little bit. Um, because you have been asked this question a couple of times. And, right. I mean, as you said, I will make a decision. Right. Why do you feel at least a flicker in the belly to even think about running for president?
1: Well, because, you know, I care a great deal about this country. Um, I've spent the vast majority of my professional life um, in public service. Um, I think I've got ideas that um, I hope would resonate with the American people. I think I've got the guts, you know, to potentially do the things that I think the next president would would have to do. you know, this is not a time. This is not a time to be half stepping. Um, this is a time to deal with a changing America, um, with America, an America that will be wounded by the experience that we are presently um, going through. Um, so, th- I mean, it is all those things. It doesn't mean I'm, you know, ultimately, I'm going to do it. Um, I, I'm certainly going to be involved in you know what happens in 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 2020. Um, but I care about this country. You know, I care about the way in which people in this nation are treated. Um, I care about the notion of, of, of fairness, of, of equality. Um, you know, I <laughs> I think this country is um, is a great one. And you know, we have a pretty consistent arc of, uh, of progress. We're a better nation now than we were 50 years ago. Dr. King said, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, and it bends towards justice. But that only happens when people put their hand on that arc and pull it towards justice. And um, I wanna do that, and the question is, you know, what will be the, the manner in which I'll, uh, I'll do it?
0: Have you discussed this with President Obama?
1: I, uh, well, here's one thing where I'll, I'll agree with Sessions. Um, I, I don't really talk about my conversations with the president. <laughs> oh, so you're protecting him now, is what you're
0: saying. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Okay, so, so uh, another uh, Twitter follower sent me this question for you from @MikeEatsMiami. Mike Eats Miami. I have no idea what that means. Um, he, he, here's my question, he writes. There is talk of your your potential candidacy for president. Do you feel now is the right time to continue to recycle members of previous administrations as candidates for president, or do you agree that it is better to refresh the faces of the Dem Party?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know it's a, it, we want new ideas. You want to have, um, I, and I think that's really the question. You know, who's got new solutions to um, the new issues that we have to confront um you know i don't think you know as much as the baby boomer generation is kind of getting a a bad rap i don't think we necessarily have to exit the stage at um at this point but the test really is um there's a particular individual have um new views new ideas that's not necessarily a function of when you were born it's a function of your outlook it's a, a function of um your perspectives and so yeah, I think, um, you know, at some point, yeah, you can be too old. Um, and at some point, you can be too young because you need, you know, certain life experiences, I think, to really understand um, the nature of, of all, all of these jobs. So I think it's really more, the focus ought to be on ideas as opposed to um, birth date. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, it's been nine years, and by my calculation here, nine years and one month since you gave the the famous Nation of Cowards speech uh, okay. uh, in 2009 for the Department of Justice African American History Month program. And it was a rather a bleak assessment for, for America in 2009. Mm-hmm. I, re- I listened to it again last night, mm-hmm. but that was 2009. Yeah. How would you amend that speech to fit 2018?
1: Well, I think you know we're actually in a better place, having had an African-American president, uh, an African-American first lady, an African-American family in the White House. I think that we are in a better place than we were perhaps then. Though we are, you know, there are things coming out of the White House now that want to take us back to a place, um, well, Frank, a, a place that really kind of never existed. Um, but I, I think if, if people read that speech, uh, you and I have talked about this before, I didn't just get up and say at the Justice Department, the United States is, is a nation of cowards, and sat down. I didn't, you know, I didn't, the speech was much more full than that. Um, I actually thought it was a pretty optimistic speech. And um, I think it's actually held up pretty well. I read it, I guess, just a couple of weeks or so ago. Um, and uh, you know, I, I pretty much stand by that which I said there. And what I said was, we were, you know, when it came to things racial, that we too often as a nation were um, afraid to confront our racial past and our racial present. And in that way, uh, I said that we were too often a nation of cowards. Right.
0: But in today's today's America, listening to that speech last night was like going back to this, ma- this magical time when that speech was like the most important controversy of the day. Oh, Think yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, compared to where we are now. In yeah, tan suits. Remember how big. Oh tan yeah, tan suits. Tan suits at, you know what? I shouldn't talk. I was part. I was part of that brigade. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but he, today, we we have gone from from a president who embodies all those things that you talk you just talked about to a White House that has become a bullhorn for white supremacy that allowed Charlottesville. To that glorified what happened in Charlottesville with both sides, uh, and not outright condemning the the racial violence that happened there. How can you say that you're that we're in a be, in a better place when the White House has become such a bullhorn?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can certainly look and focus on you know, the particulars of this moment and be concerned, and I am concerned. But I think the, the, that arc of history is, is much greater than simply what's happened over the course of the last 13, 14 months. Which have been significant and which have been negative. I mean, you know, like him or not, Donald Trump has been a consequential president. Um, I think he's been a negative consequential president. But I think you have to pull back and see, look at um, these past 13 months or so in the you know in the full range of American history. And I still think they were on you know a better arc. There are going to be issues that um, will remain after Trump leaves that this nation is going to have to deal with. Especially, you know, among other things, when it comes to, you know, to to race and the divisive way in which that has been that has been used. But you know, I remain optimistic about, um, you know, the goodness of the American people, the capacity of the American people to accept the demographic changes that. I think people in the White House and at the Justice Department so fear. Um, You know, we're a nation of immigrants. And I I said before, I said recent immigrants, you know, because the reality is, unless you are a Native American, unless you're one of the indigenous people, unless you're an American Indian, you are of immigrant stock. Now, if your people came over on the Mayflower, you're, you know, those were immigrants, early immigrants here. you know a lot of our folks came over on, on, on slave ships um, you know we are of immigrant stock um, you know my father came to this country at the early part of the 20th century as a 12 year old from uh, from Barbados both of my mother's parents the same same thing and that story can be replicated by everybody in um, in this room and everybody in this country we are of immigrant stock immigrants make this nation great they replenish the nation they revivify the nation um, they keep us fresh in a way that other nations are not. And to turn our back on our immigrant past in the way that this administration has, I think, is dangerous. But ultimately, they're not doing anything that cannot be reversed come 2020. All right, this is my favorite part of, of,
0: of the interview. And now I'm getting scared. Right. <laughs> and, and we're gonna. We're, I'm just gonna tell everybody right now, we're gonna run a little over. Um, so Adam Kuhn tweeted at me, uh, at Bethesda ADK, over the weekend, um, is it difficult living in the shadow of being married to such a great doctor?
1: <laughs> Dr. It, Sharon Malone. It is. In, in Washington, D.C., I'm really Mr. Sharon. People will come up to me and say, hey, aren't you Eric Holder? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, my wife um, goes to your doctor, you know, goes to your wife, or or a woman's like, say, oh, are you doc- Eric Holder? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Sharon Malone's my doctor. So, uh, no, I'm... Uh, I live in her shadow, but I do so uh, very proudly. She is a great doctor. She's a great wife. She has been um, a great mom. Um, she's the rock in our family. In. And she's gorgeous. And she's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed initially by her intellect. When I, that first night I met you, it was your intellect that came through. Yeah. If we
0: had more time, I would, t- I would so get into how they met because it's a great story. Um, in 2014, I asked you um, this question, but I'm, I'm turning it around for 2018. Mm-hmm. Homeland, scandal, Veep, house of cards. Which one gets the Trump
1: administration mostly right? I don't. I don't remember what I said before, um, but I was. I'd say House of Cards now. You know, I mean House of Cards. You know, you look at it and think, oh, that's. It's interesting. That's kind of absurd. (laughs) Now it's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. That that. This is a reality show I'm watching now. It's uh, (laughs) a. So I, I'd probably, I might say House of Cards, you know? Okay. What did I say before? I don't remember. Um, you said, let's see,
0: it may have been Veep because okay. you, you made an oblique reference to Vice President, Vice President Ch- Cheney, oh, okay. which, you know, yeah. got a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you more T'Challa or Killmonger? <laughs> what? <laughs> don't
1: don't even try You know you've seen Black Panther. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I just saw it two, two nights ago. Um, and it seemed like a great movie, but I have to tell you, I had just come back from a long trip and I kind of fell asleep in the movie. What? So I'm going back. I'm going back. I mean, the parts that I saw, I really liked. Um, and there were. You're not answering my question. I want to give you a truthful answer, so we're going to have to come back after I've had a chance to really kind of, you know, check it totally out. Come on, man.
0: All right. Um, Miles Blair is playing you in the forthcoming CBS show, Main Justice, and when we spoke in 2014, I asked you, who did you want to play you in the movie? And you said Denzel Washington. Right. (laughs) Does
1: that still hold, or are you open to suggestion? Uh, I'm oh, well. The, the part has been cast now, and uh, for the movie. Well, well for the t- for well, that's the TV, TV show. show. But I'm like you know. Oh, for the movie? Oh, this. Oh, we'll go into a movie. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I still like Denzel to be there. You know, <laughs> but I'm open to suggestions. I mean, because uh,
0: my I should say Miles Blair right. is the person who will be playing you in, in Main Justice. No,
1: Bohem Woodbine. I'm well, 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 um, sorry. That's is, gonna, the, is, gonna, yes. is the actor who will be. Uh, Playing the the Attorney General, he'll be playing me. He'll be playing the Attorney General. Playing the Attorney General. In main That's yeah. Not you, but it's right. you. Right, right, right. So, it's not me. It's not me. I, he's, got, just, he's got a bald head, you know. I'm getting there, but he's, he's like he's gone. You know? That's why I'm. Th- that's why I'm thinking maybe Idris Elba. I mean, right? Oh, yeah. So you hear I, that? Oh, wow. My wife would like that. Uh, you know? <laughs> One of the best pictures I think I ever took was you uh, with Idris Elba, right? One of her are, faith- you, are you in the picture? No. <laughs> I was taking the picture, as instructed.
0: All right, I just want to end here on a, on a serious note um, to reflect on 1968, yeah. the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You were 17 years old mm-hmm. on April 4th, 1968. Do you remember where you were on that
1: date? Yeah, I remember uh, the bulletin coming across the, uh, the television, you know, black and white TV, I think, that we had. And um, my mother was out. I ran, the car pulled in. Um, I remember running out of, the, out of the house and telling her, you know, hey, mom, you know, Dr. King um, has been assassinated. Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Um, and she was crying and said she had heard it on the radio. And uh, we all gathered in front of the, the television to watch the news reports, um, you know, that day. And I remember, you know, feeling a sadness um, that I had not felt, you know, before November 22nd, 1963, you know, when President Kennedy was assassinated. I, I had not lost anybody in my family. Um, it was very close To me, and I felt something very intense in 1963 and felt something extremely intense in 1968 with the death of of Dr. King, not knowing that I was going to feel something very intense two months later with the assassination of of Robert Kennedy. Who's your greatest inspiration? I think my father, um, my mother, um, you know, people who. Worked hard. My father was, uh, you know, a dropout, didn't complete high school, and was among the wisest people I've ever known. Um, had a sense of uh, what was right, what was wrong, good um, instinctive abilities in assessing people. Um, he's a person, you know, I owe almost everything to, um, and the things I don't owe to him, I owe to uh, my mother, who. Uh, uh, finished high school, um, but never had the opportunities that um, she should have had um, because she was an African American woman, and you know there were limits placed into how far she could uh, how far she could go. She was uh, as intelligent a person um, and as uh, you know as, as driven a person as, as I've ever known. Had she been born, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, um, she might have been the first African American uh, you know female attorney general. But she was denied that chance. And she was determined, as my father was determined, that their boys um, would not be denied those opportunities. And so I thank them. Eric Holder, 82nd Attorney General of the United States.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments. I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past. Forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash RetroPod. The
1: Washington. Washington. Washington, Washington Post. Post. Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm here with Jeff Edgers, going to do his podcast, Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR and the Washington Post. I've always wanted to be involved in a collaboration between WBUR and the Washington Post ever since I was a baby. Edge of Fame, before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Subscribe to Edge of Fame wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter, offering technology to help you find candidates that match your job qualifications.